We hope you like this Resurrection Oakland Church podcast. Unauthorized use of any part of this copyrighted material for redistribution or duplication is not permitted without prior consent from Resurrection Oakland Church. To learn more about our church and its charity and mission work in and around Oakland, California, please visit our website at www.resoakland.com. the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Benabadab, Aminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uzziah's, I'm sorry, Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehob. <laughs> Sorry, Rehoboam. <laughs> Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amon. Amon, the father of Josiah and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abihud, Abihud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, Achim, the father of Elihud, Elihud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathan, Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus who was called the Messiah. Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can take your seat. I know what you're all thinking. Yep. That, <laughs> that definitely deserves a round of applause. You are all thinking, thank God they did not ask me to be the scripture reader today. Who is that brave woman? Um, you're also probably thinking, are we, re- are we really going to have a sermon on this? Really? This is one of those parts of the Bible that when you open it up and you're, you're reading through and you come to a section like this, you just kind of skim, right? And what I want you to know is there is so much good news in this passage. Uh, there's, it is, it is, there is so much good news. 
in this genealogy. We are continuing this morning in our series, our Advent series actually on longing. And longing is really what Christmas is all about. Culturally, we've made it about a lot of other things. We've made it about presents and parties and time with family and all these things are great, but none of them are as great as what Christmas is actually about. Uh, According to Christianity, Christmas is about our deepest hopes, our deepest desires, our deepest longings, and how they find their ultimate fulfillment in the person of Jesus. I said this last week, and we're going to be saying this every week throughout the series, but Christmas is not for happy people. Christmas is for hungry people. It is for people who have a deep sense that the world is not the way that it's supposed to be and that they are not the way that they're supposed to be. It is for people who feel that despite all of the good things there are to enjoy at Christmas, and there are many good things to enjoy, that it's never enough, that no matter how good your life is, it's not good enough. It is for people who have a deep sense of heartache and of sadness and of disappointment and who find themselves yearning for something more. Christmas is for hungry people. It's for people who long to be filled, which is all of us. And so we're we're, we're looking at these longings over this Advent season, our our longing for love, that was last week. Uh, Next week we're going to look at our longing for peace. In two weeks we're going to look at our longing for joy, but today we're going to look at our longing for hope. Now hope is probably not what you were thinking about when the passage was read. You probably started thinking about lunch, actually. Let's just be honest. You were thinking about other stuff. You kind of tuned out. But this passage is dripping with hope. It is about the genealogy of Jesus, the birth of Jesus. And it is dripping with hope. And if there is anything that our society has been desperately searching for the last 18 months, it is hope. I mean, maybe that's why you're here today. You came to church because you need some hope. Christianity means that you can have it. This passage says you can have it. And before we kind of jump into the sermon today, let me say this. Uh, The problem with hope is that we've done the same thing to hope that we've done to Christmas. And that is we have become very sentimental and sappy about hope. To quote the great Ted Lasso, (laughs) I believe in hope. And you see, that's actually why culturally we become very cynical about hope, because we become very sappy about it. And what we need is we need more than just a feel-good Ted Lasso kind of hope. We need a kind of hope that can stand up to life's biggest questions and its hardest situations. And this passage gives us that kind of hope. Christmas gives us that kind of hope. This passage tells us three reasons why Christmas makes hope possible. Let me give them to you from up front. It says that there is no circumstance God does not use. There is no person God cannot love. And there is no wrong that God will not right. That's where we're going this morning. So first, Christmas means that there is no circumstance that God does not use. Now, Matthew begins his genealogy of Jesus by going all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. So look at verse 1. He says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, in Genesis chapter 12, God makes a promise to Abraham. 
And the promise is that he is going to give Abraham offspring and that through this offspring, he is going to bless the world. And what Matthew is doing in this genealogy is he is going to great lengths to show us that Jesus is in, the, is in the line of Abraham. You see this? He starts off with Abraham in verse 1, and he ends with Jesus in verse 16. And the reason that Matthew is doing this is to show us that Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. That it's actually through Jesus we can actually experience God's blessing and favor in our lives. Now, in between God making that promise in Genesis chapter 12 and God fulfilling that promise in the birth of Jesus there was a lot of terrible things that happened. A lot of terrible things. And a lot of them are in this genealogy and there's too much to give you all of them. I'm just going to give you the very first one that we see here. Uh, look at verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac the father of Jacob. Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Now this is interesting. Why does he... Matthew is tracing the line mostly through fathers because this is a patriarchal culture. But all of a sudden here, he says Judah and his brothers. Why does he include the brothers piece? And the answer is because he is reminding us of the story of these brothers. And he's actually reminding us of the story of one brother in particular. And it's the story of Joseph. Joseph's brothers hated him. They were envious of how loved he was by their father. And so they came up with this great idea that they would sell him off into slavery which is what they did, and they thought they would never see him again. But through a series of events, Joseph came to great prominence in Egypt. He rose to second in command in Pharaoh, and God actually used Joseph to spare the entire land. He was very wise. He came up with this idea of, look, we've got to store up all this food in case of a famine, which is exactly what happened. And God used him to spare many lives. And one day, Joseph's brothers came to him begging for food, not knowing that it was their brother that they were asking for it from. They thought he was dead. And when they realize that it is Joseph in front of them, they, they think he is going to kill them. And instead, he says one of the most hopeful sentences in the entire Bible. Let me tell you, Christian, this is, this is a verse you need to get deep in your bones. It is a verse that you need for the journey of the Christian life, which is long and arduous. And the verse is this. It's Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. And Joseph looks at his brothers and he says, what you meant for evil, God used for good. And you see, what Matthew is doing here in reminding us of this story is he's saying, look, this genealogy is not just historical but it's theological. Matthew's trying to tell us something about the character of God in this genealogy. You thought it was just a bunch of names. No, God is saying, let me show you what I'm like. And what we learn from the Joseph story is that there's no circumstance in your life that God cannot use for your good. Not a single one. You know, what, here's what I find most hopeful about the Joseph story. Do you know whose idea it was to sell Joseph into slavery? There were 11 brothers, but Genesis chapter 37 actually names the one who came up with the whole idea. You know who it was? It was Judah. See, God used 
even Judah's sin for his salvation. The evil that Judah committed, God used it to get Joseph to Egypt so that Judah's life would eventually be spared and so that the promise made to Abraham would actually continue through him. Isn't that amazing? You know, don't miss the balance here. Like what Judah did was evil. It was wrong. It, it wreaked havoc in his life, as many of our decisions do. They wreak havoc in our lives, and they wreak havoc in the lives of the people we love, and yet God used it. Do you see how hopeful this is? It means that no matter what you have done, God never puts your life on plan B. It means that no matter how broken your life is, no matter what a mess you have made of it, God can always bring beauty out of it. He can use your pain, he can use your suffering, and he can even use your sin. He can use your biggest regrets and failures. Nothing gets wasted in the kingdom of God. If you belong to him, there is nothing that you can do to, de to derail his determination to work for your good. Romans 8, 28. God works all things together for the good of those who love him. Not some things, not your best things, not your good things, but God works all things. And you might hear that and you think, you know, well, I, then why am I not seeing it? Because <laughs> I've had some pretty terrible things happen in my life. Or maybe you're thinking, I've done some pretty terrible things in my life, and I'm not seeing how God can use, or is using it for my good. D do you know how many years came in between this promise to Abraham and the fulfillment? It's about 2,000 years. Abraham never saw it in his life. He never saw it in this life which means we won't always see it either. Sometimes we expect God to take our bad things and to make them good in about a week, right? You know, you ever heard somebody say, you know, I lost my job, but then God gave me another one, and I met my future spouse in my new place of work. And you see, God is always working for our good, but he does not always do it on our timeline. And he does not always do it the way that we think he should. And Christian maturity means learning to trust that God is always working for your good even when you can't see it. I mean, think about Christmas. Think about the way that Jesus came at Christmas. He didn't come on a throne. He came in a manger. He didn't come in strength. He, didn't, he, he came in weakness. None of it happened the way that everyone was expecting it to happen. No one looked into that manger and thought God was about the business of redeeming the world. That's exactly what God was doing, though. Christmas means that hope is possible because there is no circumstance in your life that God does not use, not a single one. Here's point two. It means that hope is possible because there's no person God cannot love. You know, in the ancient world, genealogies were a, a really big deal 
And uh, they're actually a much bigger deal than they are today. We, we don't really understand this because we live in a much more individualistic culture. You're defined by what you do and what you accomplish. But this was a traditional culture where you were actually defined by your family. Your, your place in society was determined by your family. It's a shame and honor culture. You know, if you wanted to have status in the ancient world, you needed a good genealogy. Which means that if there were people in your family history who brought disgrace on your family, you know what you did? You edited them out of the genealogy. You left them out. And we actually know from historical genealogies that this is what people did. They left people out. Leaving people out was a way of rejecting them. It was a way of disassociating yourself. It was a way of saying, I want nothing to do with this person. But including them was a way of saying, I'm, I'm proud of this person. I want to be connected to this person. Look at who God puts in his genealogy. I mean, let's just start with the first person listed, David. Remember him? You know, the great king of Israel. I mean, this is exactly the kind of person we love to be connected to. Power, prestige, royalty, importance. You see, Matthew does something a little farther down in this genealogy to say, if that's what you're thinking about when you think about King David, let me, let me remind you of something else. I don't want you thinking about the impressive part of David's life. I want you to think about the dark parts of his life. Because look at this in verse 6. When David shows up again, he says, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Why does he say that? Because Matthew is reminding us of the whole story. What's the story of David? He fell in love with a woman named Bathsheba, who was married to a man named Uriah, who was one of David's greatest generals. What did David do? He had Uriah killed so that he could marry Bathsheba. I mean, the very first person in God's genealogy is a murderer and an adulterer. Let's keep going. Who's the second? Abraham. Okay, remember Abraham? The Bible calls him the father of faith. Abraham had so little faith that when God made this promise to him in Genesis 12 that he would give him an offspring, Abraham did not trust God. What did he do? He went and slept with his servant. Let's keep going. Jacob, remember him? Jacob was a liar and a deceiver. He, he disguised himself as his older brother to get the family's birthright. I mean, let me just tell you, this genealogy is not going well so far, Okay. Then we get to Tamar in verse 3. Now, now, Tamar was a woman, which is interesting, because women were not typically included in genealogies in the ancient world. Why? Because they didn't have status. This genealogy has five women in it, which I, I think is really interesting, because some people say, you know, Christianity uh, is so misogynistic, and it is so patriarchal, and yet here we have, in God's family history, five women listed, which is a whole other sermon in itself. But here's what I want you to notice this morning, is that three of the five women in this genealogy were sexually immoral. Tamar 
committed incest with her father-in-law, Judah. Rahab was a prostitute. Bathsheba was an adulteress. You see, this genealogy, it is filled with moral and spiritual failure of every type. It makes, it makes the worst family you've ever seen on a Dr. Phil show look healthy. <laughs> why would God do this? Why, why, why does God give us Matthew chapter 1? Why does he list these people? D- Dale Bruner, who's a New Testament Scholar, he says this, he says, one gets the impression that Matthew poured over his Old Testament until he could locate the most questionable people possible in order to insert insert them into his record and to preach the gospel, even in his genealogy. What is the gospel? The gospel is not God loves good people. The gospel is not God loves moral people. The gospel is not God loves religious people who go to church on Sunday morning. The gospel is God loves broken, messy, sinful people. And some of you, you come into this room today and you're so skeptical that God could love you like this. You look at your life and you think, look at all these things I've done to disqualify myself from God's love. This genealogy is saying, no matter who you are, no matter what you have done, you are never, ever, ever beyond the reach of God's love. If God can love the people in this list, he can love anyone. And you see, what is it? It's kind of a popular thing today to talk about God love and God can love anyone, but but. You know, you got to ask the question, what is it that makes that love possible? And the answer is Christmas. Christmas is what makes it possible. Dorothy Sayers was a brilliant author. She was one of the first women to graduate from Oxford. And she loved writing detective fiction. And another little detail about her, and this is by her own admission, is that she was, she was not a very attractive woman. She wrote a, a famous series that was based on a character named Lord Peter Whimsey. He was kind of a Sherlock Holmes type. Now, halfway through this series, Lord Peter Whimsey, he grows quite lonely. And when he grows lonely, it's when a new character shows up. Her name is Harriet Vane. Now, this is where the backstory of the book actually gets interesting because in the series, Harriet Vane is one of the first women to graduate from Oxford. And Harriet Vane loves writing detective fiction. And Harriet Vane is not a very attractive person. And in this book, she and Whimsy meet one another. And they work on a few cases together and they fall in love. And literary scholars who have studied Dorothy Sayers say that what she did was that she looked into this world that she'd created, and she looked into this person that she'd created, and she wrote herself into the story. You know what Matthew is saying in this genealogy? 
that that is what Christmas is all about. That the God who made this world and who made every single person in it looked at us and he wrote himself into the story. And do you know that only Christianity says this? Only Christianity is the only world religion that says God actually became a person. Now, why is that significant? It's significant because every other religion says the way that you get God's love is by following the rules, is by keeping the commandments, is by maintaining the five pillars. The way you get God's love is by being a good person. You know what Christianity says? The way you get God's love is by realizing you aren't a good person. It's by coming to the conclusion that God loves you not because you are good, but because he is good. And because he has come into the world to do for us what we could never do for ourselves, to live the life that we should have lived. And to die the death that we should have died so that we could experience his love, not because of anything that we have done, but because of everything that he has done in the person and work of Jesus Christ. See, here's the truth. If Christmas didn't happen, then none of us, if we know ourselves rightly, can hope to experience God's love. But if Christmas did happen, then anyone can experience God's love. Anyone. Anyone. Christmas makes hope possible because it says that there is no one who's beyond the reach of God's love. Here's the last point. It makes hope possible because it says there's no wrong God will not right. Now, we've talked a lot about hope for us today as individuals, but what about hope for our world? What about hope for our city? If you have been paying attention at all lately, you know that there is a lot of hopelessness in Oakland. We, we have record levels of violent crime. Homicides are at all-time highs. Several of them have taken place in the blocks just around this building over the last couple weeks. There is a lot of despair in this city. There's a lot of anger in this city. People are hurting in this city. Schools are still struggling on the other side of COVID. We have neighborhoods that are stuck in generational poverty. Tent encampments are everywhere. People are living in scarcity. And the question is, is how do you have hope in the face of such chaos and brokenness? And Matthew tells us, right here in this genealogy, if you look in your worship guide, you'll notice that verses 6 through 11 are their own section. And what Matthew is doing in verses 6 through 11, he's, he's tracing the line from David to the exile in Babylon. This is the time where Israel was in great decline. They had wicked kings. They had evil kings. They lost their land. They lost their temple. They failed to be a light to the nations. They committed great injustice. They neglected the poor, and eventually it led to the exile. This is, this is, uh, this is the part, this part of the genealogy is all about God's judgment, actually. And in fact, Matthew does something really unusual in verse 10. And you're not going to see it in your translation if you look at your worship guide because the NIV translators did not do a good, good job with this. But, but if you look in verse 10, you see the name Ammon. Matthew actually wrote the name Amos there. And we, we don't catch this, but 
any of the original readers would have caught this. And it's, well, here's what's interesting about it. Ammon was a king during this time. And as Matthew writes, Manasseh was his father and Josiah was his son. So why does Matthew change a single letter and make it Amos? You know why? Because Amos was the prophet of judgment in the Old Testament. The par excellence prophet of judgment. Amos is a short little book. It is all about God's judgment. Amos calls it the day of the Lord where he talks about this future judgment that God is going to bring over sin and death and evil. And so what is Matthew doing right here in verses 6 through 11? He is highlighting God's judgment. Now, many people, maybe you here this morning, have a big problem with the idea of a God of judgment. We love the idea of a God of love, but we hate the idea of a God of judgment. You know what Matthew is doing? He is saying, if that's where you are, stop and think. You have to stop and think because without judgment, there is no hope. There is no hope without judgment. Why do I say that? Hope is all about your view of the future. That's what hope is. It's all about your view of the future. If your view of the future says, we all just die and that's it. Game over. What hope can you really have in life right now? You know, if your your view of the future says there's not going to be any sort of dealing with all of the chaos and the brokenness that we see today, how can you find any real meaning or hope in the present? Christianity says there is actually a rational hope available to us. It says that in the end, God is going to deal with evil finally and fully. It says that he is going to bring every injustice to account, that everything that is broken will be made whole, and everything that is wrong will be made right. And because of that future reality, we can actually have hope today no matter how dark things may seem. You see how hopeful this is for our world? For those who are victims of violence and abuse, it says that justice will come. For those who are oppressed and you feel stuck on the bottom of society, it says a day is coming where you will be lifted up. For those who live in scarcity, it says a day is coming where you will live in abundance and plenty. For those who are suffering, It says that the day is coming when sorrow and sickness will cease and all things will be made new. And Christianity and Christianity alone offers you this kind of hope. See, if there is no judgment, there is no hope. But if there is judgment, then there is infinite hope. And you know, maybe you hear this and you think, you know, it all sounds like a fairy tale. It sounds like something, like, like, like something you hope is true about the future. And that's fair, but that is not how Christianity works. Notice this, Christian hope is not anchored in what we hope is true about the future. It is anchored in what we know is true about the past. It's anchored in Christmas. See, Matthew does not start this genealogy by saying, once upon a time. This is not a fairy tale. 
This is real history. Jesus lived and he was born in real space and in real time, and he has come. And because of that, we have the certain hope that he will come again. And that's actually what this table points us to. It points us back to his first coming, but it points us forward to his promise to return, where he will make all things new. And that's why this table is the table of hope. It says that there is no wrong that God will not make right in the end. And it says that there's no circumstance God cannot use. You know, if God can use the cross, the most unjust suffering in history, for the good of the world, then he can use anything in your life. And this table says that there's no person God cannot love. Anyone can come to this table. All you need is need. This table is not for good people. It's not for moral people. It's not for religious people. It is for broken, messy people. It is for people who know their sin and who know their Savior. And that because of Him and in Him and through Him, we are loved. So here's the invitation for you this morning. You may may come stumbling to this table. You may come limping to this table. You may come feeling like you have made a mess of your life this week. But Jesus invites you. Not because you have been good, but because he is good. And he is kind, and he is merciful, and he is ready to welcome you and to receive you. On the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body given for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he blessed it, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. The Apostle Paul tells us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for the hope of the gospel, for the hope that we were reminded of in this table that nothing in our life gets wasted, that nothing we do could deter your love for us, and then in the end, you are going to make all things right. This is the hope that we need, and so we pray that you would give us faith today as we eat and drink together to cling to this hope. Make it true for us. In Christ's name, amen.